Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, gaming world, how are you? <laughs> and welcome to episode 18 of Co-op Cast. Today we are reviewing uh, something we discussed actually way back in episode zero, and that is Forbidden Island. And this all started based on a Twitter message from Nathan Davis. He said, you and Mike often talk about playing co-ops with your five-year-old. As a father of a three and a one and a half-year-old who can't wait to start gaming with my kids, I'd love to hear how you get younger kids into it as part of a pod. Keep up the good work. All right, Nathan, so this is for you. Yeah, so uh, we love to hear from you if you have games you want us to review, questions you want us to answer, got design discussions you want us to have. I know all the information's at the end, but if you just want to hear it right away, at least our Twitter handle, it's at MVP Board Games. Yeah, and you can email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook at MVP Board Games. Please feel free to reach out to us and let us know what you're thinking and we will probably cater to you. Yeah, and this entire episode is going to be focused on gaming with children in one way or another. Uh, Forbidden Island, a game that I've played with uh, Harrison, my five-year-old, and I put no Peter's played with both his kids. We're going to have a design discussion on designing games for children. And the after show is going to be focused on gaming with your kids. Yeah, and getting them involved, getting them interested, keeping them interested, all of that. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, Hopefully, though, I I think you non-parents in the uh, listening audience, you should have a lot to enjoy here as well, especially the uh, the review of Forbidden Island, which is what we're going to start with. Right, and I'll just get into it a little bit with the theme. They do a really good job of describing it on the cover of the rules, so I'm just going to do a dramatic reading of that for everybody. Forbidden Island was the secluded retreat of an ancient mythical empire known as the Archeons. Legend has it that the Archeons possessed the ability to control the Earth's core elements, fire, wind, water, and earth, through four sacred treasures, the crystal of fire, the statue of wind, the ocean's chalice, and the Earth's stone. Because of their potential to cause catastrophic damage, if they fell into enemies' hands, the Archeons kept treasures secretly hidden on Forbidden Island and designed it to sink if intruders ever attempted to claim them. In the centuries since mysterious collapse of their empire, Forbidden Island remained undiscovered. Until now, will your team be the first to breach its borders, capture the treasures, and make it out alive? Very nice. Can I just say, I love, <laughs> I've never read this before, I, I've owned this game for years, <laughs> I've played it dozens of times, and when you mentioned that you were going to do a dramatic reading, I went and read it, and it's just ridiculous, I'm like, the Archeons, who the heck are they? And the idea that, like, these artifacts can destroy the Earth, and that you're taking them as treasure hunters, which kind of makes it sound like you're going to destroy the Earth through your uh, your meddling. I don't think that was the point of it, but yes, I I do understand that these are powerful artifacts, and uh, yeah, I don't know where we're going to put these, like, in a museum? Yeah, exactly, or that that big uh, warehouse in the Indiana Jones franchise, I guess, with the the Ark of the Covenant and everything. (laughs) You know, hopefully there's some maximum security for them, that's all I gotta say. Right. Uh, So I'm going to get into the rules, and we didn't say this at the start, but if you aren't familiar with the game, this is, I believe the, this was the first offshoot of the pandemic design, right? Correct. Like way before we had all these uh, these more historical pandemics and the legacy versions and all of that, after a base pandemic came out, Forbidden Island came out by the same designer but a different publisher. So to go through the rules, they're, they're pretty basic. It's a pretty simple game. Uh, you lay out a bunch of tiles to make up the island. They all start on their colored normal side. And then you draw from the Flood deck, which uh, has one copy of each of the tiles, one card for each tile in it. Draw six cards to start the game, and that floods those six tiles. You flip them over to a sort of sepia or, like, washed-out grade version of the tile to show that it is sinking. You each uh, choose an adventurer, either randomly or by your choice. There's uh, six to choose from. Each player gets two treasure cards. So there are two decks, the Flood deck, which represents all the locations, and the Treasure deck. You get two treasure cards. You shuffle all the rest. You choose your difficulty level, which uh, you set how many Flood cards you're drawing per turn, basically, on this little water level uh, cardboard tile. And then uh, you just start uh, going around the table taking turns. 
So on your turn, you get to do three actions. There's only four actions you can take. You can move one uh, space in a orthogonal direction. You can flip a uh, flooded tile. It's called shoring it up. Uh, that is either on your space or orthogonally adjacent to you and flip it back to its colored side so it's not about to flood anymore. You can, if you're on the same space as another player, give them one of your hand of treasure cards. Or you can, if you have gotten four cards of the same treasure, uh, so there's four treasures, as Peter mentioned in, in the, the theme there, if you have four cards matching one treasure and you're in one of the two locations that matches that treasure as well, then you can spend an action to get that treasure discarding the four cards. And that, by the way, is your winning condition. You have to get all four treasures as a group, get back to Fool's Landing, which is where your helicopter is parked, and play a helicopter card to fly away. That's how you win the game. You lose the game in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, if both the locations that match a treasure sink completely before you have uh, captured that treasure, then you lose since you can't get all four treasures anymore. If a player uh, drowns, basically, which is very tough to have happen, but uh, if their tile they're on sinks completely and they have no adjacent tiles to move to, you lose. And uh, the way that we usually lose is uh, if Fool's Landing, if the tile with your helicopter sinks, you also lose. I'm talking about sinking a lot, but uh, just to explain, after you take your three actions, you draw two uh, treasure cards, which usually is going to give you more cards to try to capture the treasures. But there are also Waters Rise cards in that same treasure deck. And those, first of all, kind of like Pandemic, they reshuffle the flood cards you've already drawn back on top of the deck. So the same things that have already flooded are going to flood again. And uh, they also raise the water level, so you might be drawing more cards after every player's turn. And then finally, you draw cards equal to the water level. If they're on their color side, they flip to their flooded side. If they're already on the flooded side, they are removed from the game. And also the card is removed from the game. So it speeds up the game in a couple ways. You have a smaller, tighter, more uh, pockmarked uh, board to move around on. And also the, uh, the flood deck gets smaller and you go through the cards more quickly. So that's basically it. You work together, uh, trading cards, shoring up the island, and uh, waiting until you get the matches you need. And then capturing the treasures and trying to escape. Yeah, no, that's a great rules explanation, very thorough. I mean, it is a very straightforward game. It's it's really quick. It is something you can play with children because of that, because the actions are all very simple. And so let's get into it, because I don't want to spoil too much of the design discussion here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so for those who have not listened, uh, go back and enjoy the rest of our episodes. But welcome, and our format here is that uh, Peter and I are both going to go through the five things about the game that stand out the most to us. They might be positives, they might be negatives, might be a bit of a mix, and uh, we're going to start with the least important of the five and work our way to the aspect of the game that is most important to us. So Peter, why don't you give us your number five? So my number five is all the characters have individual character powers. And this is actually the same one I had for Pandemic Legacy, if you remember. This is important to me. I like games where they give you different choices based on character powers. Now, I'm a little more mixed on it here than I was with Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I think there, all the character powers are very powerful and they make you feel unique and different. Here, part of the problem is three of the characters have movement powers and one or two of them are clearly better than the other one. I think it was the diver that just can move through flooded tiles quicker. It's not something you're going to do very often, but the pilot can move anywhere they want on the board. And while the pilot's ability is limited to once per turn, you only have three actions. So it's not like you're going to be jumping all over the board anyway. So a lot of times that ability is way better than the diver's ability. So while I do like the fact that there are different character powers, I think the fact that they were restricted... By having such a easy-to-play game, they've also limited themselves on the powers. So I would have liked it if they would have had five characters instead of six and just kept the best ones. Well, yeah, it's uh, interesting. I hope, I hope we're not too simpatico for the entire thing, but that's uh, very much the same as my number five. Except for me, it was totally a con because of what you said, the unbalanced characters and how the pilot is like clearly better than the diver. And not only that, but also uh, of the six, two of the characters are purely support-based. One moves other players, and one just can give their cards to other players. 
And I find playing both of those very boring because a lot of your actions in the turn aren't actually interacting with the board, but are just doing stuff for other players. And also they don't work very well in two-player games, which is the way I play the game most often. So the fact that, uh, like, half of the characters aren't balanced against the other half, and that two out of the six characters are a bit boring to play at some player counts makes me feel like, even compared to base Pandemic, not just Pandemic Legacy, but even base Pandemic, I thought had a better balance of uh, character powers than we have here in Forbidden Island. Yep. No, I I agree with everything you say. I do like the fact that there are different character powers. I just, you know, wish they would be a little bit more balanced. But I I love when they put character powers in a game. So I I applaud them for that. Uh, I just think it is done better in Pandemic and their other games. Yeah, and that is a good point. I guess I'm just sort of making the assumption that they would have been there. I certainly would like the game less if they didn't exist at all. So I'll definitely give you that. So on to my number four. My number four is this is a very accessible game, and that's why we're doing it on our kids episode. We're kind of tying it together with that. The game is very accessible. It's very easy to set up. Even non-gamers, if this was their first game, they pulled out the rule book, they would be able to figure out how to put the game on the table, set it up, and play the game. So none of the concepts are very difficult to understand. And the three actions a turn keeps the game moving pretty quickly as well. So even if you're playing with smaller kids who get impatient, certainly you're going to get back to their turn quickly enough that it shouldn't take them out of the game so long. I'll talk about that a bit later for me. But uh, my number four is the bits in the game and the packaging and the materials. This is a pro for me. It is one of these like sort of aluminum or metal uh, boxes, which I know some people don't like, but I appreciate and think look pretty cool. The tiles are nice chunky cardboard. The cards are a nice stock. I've played this game, like I said, dozens of times, and I've never sleeved the cards. I've shuffled them, and they're still in basically pristine condition. The little thing that marks the water level is attractive. The pawns are probably the most boring part, but, you know, they do their job. And the treasures are just gorgeous. My five-year-old, that's probably the thing that excites him the most. He just likes to get the treasures. He likes to kind of stack them all in front of him. If I get the treasures, he wants to have them instead. Even my two-year-old just walking by while we were playing, like, came over and started playing with them. They're, they're these really big, like, chunky, nicely sculpted little miniatures. So, yeah, I, my number four are the cool pieces in the game. Yeah, and that leads right into my number three, which were components and artwork. I think the artwork in this game is amazing. They didn't have to do this, but every single location has unique artwork, which is just beautifully done. The four treasures you're trying to collect are these plastic, individually sculpted treasures. They don't look the same at all. The fire is like this see-through clear material, and it looks like a fire. And this is in a $20 game, mind you. So the cardstock, as you said, is great. But for me, the thing that pops is definitely the artwork and the little miniatures. You're getting all this for the $20 game. It's amazing value. So that's my number three, components and artwork. Yeah, and I I guess I did leave out the artwork, but you're absolutely right. They are really, really nice shots of each of the locations. A few of them do blend together a bit for me. That's probably the only negative I would have. Like some, like the watchtower and the other one looks kind of like a tower. I always get them confused when I'm looking for a place that's flooding. But that's a minor kind of complaint. But a bigger complaint, a pure con for my number three, is uh, more so Pandemic is already, and kind of all the Pandemic versions I've played, it's already a potentially swingy system with uh, bad card draws kind of tanking the game for you. But I find that in this game being a smaller, simpler, faster version, that the swinginess is likewise increased. You've got swinginess in a bunch of things. You've got swinginess in how the flood cards come out and which tiles sink. You know, you could uh, draw a fool's landing in the first six, be far away from it in your starting position, get a uh, water's rise right at the beginning, because unlike in Pandemic, you don't have the, like, sort of bad cards seeded throughout the treasure deck. They could all be on top or all be on the bottom. Um, And you could lose the game on the first turn. But even bigger kind of in the swinginess, and it's interesting, I think this has affected my difficulty in plays more than the actual official difficulty setting, is uh, pretty much always you'll need to go through the treasure deck at least once to uh, be able to get the cards required to uh, get all four treasures. And sometimes, uh, just by the way they shuffle all the cards you need for, like, the last treasures you need end up on the bottom of the deck. You need to go through the deck an entire second time, or they could all be on top. And it's just very swingy. 
not in a way that ruins the game for me because it is so quick and simple, but it can be a little frustrating to just feel like the game is twice as hard as it usually is because of some bad uh, shuffling and draws. Yeah, I didn't have that one on my list. Mostly, I mean, surprisingly, most of mine are, are pros. I guess not surprisingly, I really do like this game. There, It is certainly swingy in the ways you've said. I think there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate a lot of the swinginess, but you're right. A Water Rise card on turn one is very different than one on the last turn as you're going through the deck because you're dealing with those things for the entire length. So certainly there's maybe something they could have done, but it would have made the game a lot more complex. It's the kind of game where you're setting it up and playing it so quickly, so it didn't bother me as much. That didn't make my top five, but it is a good point. Well, but how about your number two, Peter? My number two is scalability. I think this game scales really well. Now, I think it is going to be more difficult with more players, although you are going to have a bigger capacity to hold cards as well. We didn't talk about that. You do only have a hand limit of five. So at some point with lower player counts, you will get into situations where you have not very many cards in your hand. But with higher player counts, you are going to have the issue of you have a lot more cards in your hand as that deck gets reshuffled, which means you're just going to get those Waters Rise cards much quicker. But the difficulty scales very well. It's very easy to scale. You know, you're just basically starting at a different level on a track. It's very obvious how you do it. Very simple to set that difficulty differently. And the other thing is there are different maps you can play with. I know the rule book only comes with one, but there are plenty of maps you can find online. And I'll put a link in the show notes that you can go and play these different maps. There's a Skull Island map. There are some maps that are just way harder, but it's a new, nice way of challenging yourself even if you're playing on a lower difficulty level. So I think there are lots of different ways to scale the game, and I like the way they did it. Yeah, and I I agree completely. Uh, My number two is coming back to your number four. It's also the accessibility of the game. I agree with everything you said. Uh, Just two other things I'll kind of focus on. Number one, you know, there are only four actions you you can do on your turn, and really 90% of the time you'll be doing just two of those, moving and shoring up and flipping the flooded tiles. So it definitely uh, made it easier to teach Harrison how to play the game and uh, to teach non-gamers how to play the game. This is why uh, this was one of my top games in our episode zero in terms of uh, games that are easy to introduce to non-gamers. It's just so simple to teach them what they'll be doing. And just another like little detail that I really appreciate is that uh, the Waters Rise cards have all the steps you execute when you draw one of them right on the card. So you don't have to like look up the rules at any point generally once you've read them once. It's really just a nice like little graphic design choice to make the game even easier for uh, anybody to jump in with. Absolutely, and that's actually influenced a lot of my graphic design on a lot of our games. A lot of the components we have, I like to have them serve multi-purposes. So if it's a first-player marker, it also has the end-of-round action steps, including passing the first-player marker. So a lot of that probably came, you know, even subconsciously from Pandemic and Forbidden Island. I love how they do the uh, graphic design and really use the cards that are fullest. Also on the back of all the player cards is the round summary. So it shows you your order of play and your actions, your possible actions available to you. So I really like how they use the components for multiple things there. Absolutely. All so right, my Peter. number one. Yeah, hit us. Might be the same as your number one. I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> it is because there, there's something I think kind of like Gloomhaven. I think there's something that stands out for this game more than anything else. Yeah. For me, this is the game where the tension ratchets up better than any game I've ever played. And so that's my number one. The tension ratchets so well in the game. And what I mean by that is at the beginning of the game, you're drawing two cards around. Then later on, you're drawing three cards around. Well, Pandemic does that too. You're, you're infecting more places as the game goes on. But the part that makes this game special is when you not only flood a tile, but you get it a second time and it totally sinks, you remove the tile and the card itself. And now you have less tiles and less cards available. So when you're going through that deck, you're going through it even faster. The last couple of rounds of the game, you may only have 10 cards left in that deck as the island has begun to sink. And now you're drawing more cards. You're drawing five cards at a time. And so it really brings up the tension a lot in this game. And I love that this game never ends with a whimper. It almost always ends with a bang. So Mike? Well, 
no surprise, that's basically the exact same as uh, my number one. We had, we had a lot of similarities here, but I think for a simple game like this, that sort of makes sense. Yeah, I'll just add, uh, it has some similarities in how the game kind of ratchets up and ends to uh, another of my favorite games, Galaxy Trucker. I like games where things are slowly being torn down and stuff becomes tougher and tougher. And yeah, to agree with Peter, I I don't think any cooperative kind of like survival game does it better than Forbidden Island. Forbidden Desert, I found much less interesting. This is a later game with a very similar system. I found much less interesting because, kind of like regular Pandemic, you're adding on negative things to the tiles. Instead of here, you're literally losing the tiles. Like, by the end of the game, you might just have this little tiny, like, sliver of land as you desperately rush for the helicopter. It is such a cool, tactile, and visual way to represent the game getting crazier that uh, I I can't think of almost any other game ever doing in such a cool, uh, quick, simple way. And I've started using some of the other maps. So here's a little trick I learned because I don't always, with some of the other maps, it's not always obvious where the tiles used to be. So you don't know what area used to be flooded if you have characters that can move in certain ways or whatever else. So one thing I've started doing, and I'm doing it even now when I'm playing the base game, is the back of the flood cards is blue. So it looks like water. So when I'm removing the tile, I'm actually putting the flood card right in the same spot where the (laughs) tile used to be. That's clever. And so it looks like water, you know is now filling up your island. So again, it serves two purposes. Number one, it looks really cool. And number two is you can actually tell where the island was if you need to need that for any special powers like the divers. Cool. So uh, Peter, what were your final thoughts on Forbidden Island? I mean, I think we made this clear in episode zero, but if you haven't listened to it, please go back and do so. This is a great game to introduce to non-gamers, to people who haven't been introduced to co-op games. Yes, if you're talking to a heavy gamer, this might be a little simple for them, but even you and I, who have played games for basically our entire lives, this is still a fun game to play, even though the decisions are fairly straightforward and fairly simple. Just that tension ratcheting up, the, the obvious choice isn't always obvious because you do have uncertainty in what's coming out in the decks. So you could go one way and it could have been the other way that you should have gone. If you're just looking for something nice, light, and simple to teach either non-gamers or to play with younger gamers, I think this is a great way to start. And I'll I'll agree absolutely with that. I do want to say it's interesting. Most of the games we review on here are games that Peter and I have played together extensively. Like, often at least half of our plays are with each other. This one, have we ever played Forbidden Island together? Maybe once or twice? Maybe once or twice, but it it must have been years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, my, you know, I, I think I have... 35 or something plays logged on uh, Board Game Geek, and almost all of those have been with a wide variety of people, uh, family at uh, social gatherings, and uh, friends who just came over for dinner, with uh, my wife playing solo with my son. It just speaks to how fun and quick and light this game is without feeling boring because of that great tension in the end game and as you play. I played it uh, solo several times and with my son several times in the last few days to kind of remind myself of how it goes, and I've thoroughly enjoyed every play. Yes, like Peter said, you know, it's not as deep or as thematic or as engaging as something like, uh, I guess, Eldritch Horror is sort of similar in the action pool and moving around, like putting out fires on the board, or uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 2 that we've been playing. But in a way, just the simplicity and the uh, accessibility and the ease of setup it's very hard to beat for a quick, fun co-op. So, and gosh, the price, like Peter said, it is amazing how cheap this game is. So if you don't own it already, there is very little reason that I can see not to have a copy sitting around, at least to play with your non-gaber friends and help them get into the hobby. And as we said with the components too, it's something that if you put it out on a table, people will come over and look at it because it is a very pretty game to look at. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, ready for a design discussion? Let's do it. So in this design discussion, we're going to be talking about designing games for kids. And I mean, this is something a little unique to us because we've never designed a game for a kid. Yeah, that's that's actually the first thing that I thought of when you uh, said this was going to be our design discussion. I'm like, well, I'm not an expert on this at all. So <laughs> I've been trying to sort of glean what's worked out well for uh, me with my son um, and what seems to appeal to him. I did want to say like one sort of caveat before we get into this. I think every kid is very different. 
there are going to be some things we'll talk about that are likely to appeal to a wide variety of kids. But I know uh, in me selecting games to play with my son Harrison, there are certain things that are just no-goes and I know are going to ruin the experience for him. But I can't say that that would be the case for all kids. Some kids might really love it. You know, I've, I've been a, a teacher for about 13 years now, and at the high school, middle school, and elementary school level, I've taught at all of them. Kids are not the same, just like nobody is the same. So, you know, kind of like you have your uh, gamers who might like Ameritrash and Euro games, uh, you have the same kind of thing with kids. So all of this is going to just be with kind of the caution that uh, everything we're saying might not necessar- necessarily apply to your child. We're just going to kind of hit the, the broad strokes that are likely to appeal to as many kids as possible. Well, and I mean, I think some things you can apply to all kids, right? Like, you don't want a lot of reading or text in it. Well, sure. <laughs> I mean, let's start with the, the basics, the simples. You don't want a lot of text in there. If you're designing a game to be played with families or, you know, people with children, maybe have more open actions. So, for example, in Forbidden Island, is very similar to Pandemic in that you have a hand of cards and you're playing cards. But in Forbidden Island, they specifically say, play with the cards open on the table. So if there is some reading involved in the cards, the parent can help the child with that. So I think those are some simple things you can do, even if you want to include text on your game. Make the game open and accessible. The parents can help the children if there are parts that they're not going to be able to do on their own. Another thing that I think applies to almost any kid is... uh make your bits as attractive and fun as possible. Uh, Forbidden Island does this well. Another game, uh, Terror in Meeple City. Is that what the official title is after the whole Rampage debacle? Yes, Terror in Meeple City. So Terror in Meeple City, my son loves playing that. And the thing is, um, I think if you can get a kid into the bits, even apart from the game, it's going to make it easier for them to also play the game. So if my son was playing with the four treasures from Forbidden Island first... It would probably be easier for me to be like, hey, do you want to sit down and actually try out the real game that those go with? But uh, attractive art, but especially things they can hold, things they can look at. You know, there are games like Loop and Louie and uh, Gulo Gulo and its different forms that have been hits for a long time. And I think one big reason is they have fun little pieces to play around with and look at. Well, and Animal Upon Animal too. And I think something else that's common between those games is dexterity. So I think if you can add a dexterity element, something manipulative, something where you're doing something beside counting actions, things like that, I think those help keep children engaged as well because they're doing something manually. And I think that tends to engage their brain in different ways and make them more inclined to play with it. If it feels more like a toy than a game, you know, my kids have been more interested in playing with it. And like you said, if you can get them playing with the bits first, Getting them to the game is not that big of a step, as long as you don't have crazy rules. Yeah, and adding on to the manipulative thing, I think uh, in general you want to keep the use of cards in a game to a minimum. Not just for the reading reason that uh, Peter said, but also kids' hands. And I know my five-year-old, I was like, here, uh, when we were playing Forbidden Island, I'm like, here, you can try to hold the cards in your hand. And, uh, you know, the kids' hands just aren't large enough and don't have the uh, the muscle memory to splay cards out so they can see all of them at once. So I, th- I think if you can cut cards entirely and just have manipulating a pawn on the board, or as Forbidden Island does, uh, just have the cards on the table and they can, like, point to them and all that kind of stuff, I think the fewer cards, the better, and the more you can kind of get them uh, moving on a board. One, I agree. I never thought of this before, but one of the games my kids love is Flashpoint Fire Rescue. And one of the things with that game is you don't have any cards. You're just moving a pawn on the board, then you get to roll some dice after you're done your turn. And kids love rolling dice as well. So if you can add dice in there and and take away the cards, I think that would certainly help. The next one for me might be a little specific to Harrison, but I think it would probably apply to a lot of children It's interesting that uh, Harrison actually didn't want to play Forbidden Island much, and I had to really push him to do it, uh, much more than some of the other games we might discuss later that he really enjoys playing. And the reason is, uh, our number one, the tension of the game and the potential for losing suddenly, that stresses him out and makes him feel anxious. And in general, uh, I think this is true of a lot of kids. I know it was true when I was a kid. Kids don't like losing. And yes, you need to teach them how to lose gracefully. But especially if they're younger, like three, four, five years old, that's a pretty tall order sometimes. 
But even apart from the losing itself, I think games that feel too tense or feel too hopeless, which is something that a lot of co-ops strive for, and, you know, we're talking about kid gaming, not just specifically co-op kid gaming, I guess. Um, but, yeah, if, if you have too much tension or too much stress in your game, things look like they are too desperate. I think it's going to turn off some kids, make them kind of freak out, make them actually want to stop playing the game, make them cry. And none of that is going to make your kid uh, want a game with you more. So I think you should be careful about how crazy the game gets. And I think Forbidden Island hit Harrison hardest because of, again, the pro for us, that you literally see the island disintegrating before your eyes and you think, it's impossible for me to win this today. And just in his case, and I think the case of a lot of kids, that was uh, one step too far to make him really enjoy the experience. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Another one I was thinking of is short turns. I think no kid has patience, especially under the age of 10, Sometimes even over the age of 10. But if your turns take five minutes apiece, there's no way you're going to keep kids engaged. It's just got to be quick actions, quick turns. Do one or two things. Okay, your turn. Now get back to me. That is a big part of when I lose my kids is if the time between their turns takes too long, they typically check out at that point and want to go do something else. Absolutely. If you can make simultaneous turns work, and that is a challenging thing to do for a kid's game because... uh, Often the rules might be slightly confusing or it'd be kind of hard to remember the steps and you need to be there to kind of walk them through it and simultaneous turns would make that very difficult. But if you can get a simple enough system that simultaneous turns work or that even real-time play works, I think that's really good. I mean, look at, you know, classic kids' games like Hungry Hungry Hippos. There is no downtime in that. You are constantly doing stuff. Or if you're playing like air hockey with uh, your kid. Well, you know, there is no downtime. And I think board games can achieve the same thing. But again, you're going to have to make the rule set so simple and kind of almost repetitive, I would say. Then you can get a simultaneous or real-time experience going and your kid's never going to get bored. Well, and a perfect example of that is Five Minute Dungeon. My kids want to play that every day now. And that is a real-time game where everybody's frantically throwing cards down on the table. You're going to get a review of that from us very soon. But it keeps them engaged. The adrenaline gets high. Again, it gets back to that dexterous action, I think, where, and just to be clear, my kids are six and 10, so a little older than Mike's kids. So I don't know how well, you know, card, you know, holding cards, throwing cards down would work for younger kids. But certainly as they get to the point where they're six years old, there's no reading on most of the cards. A lot of them will have symbols, or, and some characters are easier to use than others. So something that's very simple that they can do on their own, that they feel like they're contributing, certainly is going to keep them more engaged. But I think to your other point, though, you still don't want the tension to be too high that they're getting frustrated with it. Sure. Uh, One more thing I'll add, um, and then I think my list is almost out. I think this fits more with Ameritrash games, giving them cool moments or cool items Or just something that makes them feel like they stand out and they've accomplished something. So Forbidden Island accomplishes this with the treasures. Harrison loves having the treasures in front of him. I've played uh, Eldritch Horror with him. And when he gets, like, some really awesome artifact, like some sword, some, like, amazing armor, that kind of thing. Uh, Same thing in Descent when we would play that with the Road to Legend app. One of the big, like, kind of tricks that kept him in the game was making him feel like he had something special that nobody else had. You know, or even a player power, I think, could accomplish this, uh, which Forbidden Island does to an extent. You know, like feeling like they do something that nobody else can do so that even if they aren't doing everything, even if they aren't making the game win or lose with their actions, they still feel like they're unique, they matter, and they have something they can kind of brag about. Like whenever Harrison tells uh, my wife stories of the games he played, it's always focused on the big cool action that he took that I couldn't do or the big monster he defeated that I wasn't strong enough for or the big item he found. So there's a wide range to kind of get that ooh, awesome, like shiny experience. Uh, Could be in the bits. It could be in the actions they take. It could be in character powers, whatever. But I think if you can achieve something like that, um, then you'll really have a potential winner on your hands. And I think that goes along with theme as well. I think if you can get a theme that gets kids into it, that is going to go a long way. Dinosaurs, trucks, princesses, unicorns, Legos, even Santa's workshop, they were more interested in playing because of the theme of playing as elves and all the reindeer and all that. 
Well, that covers it for me. How about you? Yeah, no, I think that's about it. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us again. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Please stay tuned for the after show where we're going to talk about some of the experiences we had with our kids and maybe some tricks we use beyond what the game provides to get our kids playing with us. Yeah, thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. So, let's get into the after show. The after show. So, Mike, are there any tricks that you use to get your kids playing your games with you? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, some of these are so simplistic that it almost doesn't bear saying, but... I'll, like, lay out the board art and have him pick which one he wants to play instead of me kind of forcing the newest game I just got on him by getting him to kind of buy into it and have a choice right off the bat. That tends to make him a bit more excited for a game. Sometimes I'll have him, like, pick through the pieces and guess at what they do and guess what they represent. Um, Just sort of familiarizing himself with it before I jump right into a rules explanation. So usually when I'm starting a game or like starting a sort of session of gaming, those are some of the like little things I do. Now, do you actually go through rules with him or do you just be like, all right, what do you want to do? Do you want to move here? Like here are your options. Like here are a couple of things you can do. You can move and you can flip these tiles over. Uh, honestly, I don't even tell him what all the actions are at first. And this is easier. We were saying that thematic games tend to kind of go over better, at least with my kid. Um, if the game is thematic enough that it makes sense, everything is a lot easier. You know, if I can be like, hey, here's a monster over here, like kind of objective-based, like, well, hey, Harrison, what do you want to accomplish? This part of the island's sinking. Do you want to do something about that? There's a monster over here attacking people. Do you want to stop him? Then, like, giving the goal and something cool that he wants to accomplish makes it a lot easier to be like, okay, well, you could do two moves a turn, so how close can you get to him? You know, at first, when I was playing with him when he was three, he couldn't even, like, count the spaces, or he would count too many or too few. Yep. So, yeah, but that, that that's a big thing, like, just kind of working from an objective, like, what cool thing are you going to do next kind of standpoint, instead of really going through the, the nuts and bolts of the system. And I think something I still have trouble with, but I think is a good thing to do, is don't enforce the rules too much, and definitely start on a lower level than you normally would. Like, start on the lowest possible level. Like you said, you don't want the kids to get frustrated. If they want to do something, explain to them, you know, maybe you can't do it this turn, but yeah, you you got closer, now next turn you'll be able to do that. Instead of over-enforcing the rules, what I mean by that is certainly we always play by the rules because I want to teach them rules, turn structure, things like that. No, you can't do everything you want. But for example, when we play Flashpoint, my kids will never put out a fire. They just run straight in and try to go (laughs) get the people. Sometimes fire gets in their way, and so I'll be like, well... You can't really get through until you put out that fire, right? The fire people aren't going to run, firefighters aren't going to run through it. You know, it makes the game harder for us. But a lot of times then I just go around not rescuing people. I just run around putting out fires the entire time. So if what they want to do is go around rescuing people, even though it's not the ideal way to win the game, it doesn't matter. Like, let them have fun doing what they want to do. You know, certainly you can present other options. Hey, you know that fire is right next to you. You mind taking care of that for me? Can you help daddy out a little bit? But, you know, let them play the game they want to play because otherwise they'll get frustrated and like, well, I'm not really playing now. You're playing the game for me. So I, I just feel like I'm sitting here. No, absolutely. Um, I'm starting to enforce the rules a bit more with Harrison being five. But when I was playing with him last year, I would very rarely do that. Like, uh, just to call a few examples, in Eldritch Horror, if I got a cool item that I could see his eyes light up and he wanted it, even if we weren't like anywhere near each other, he'd be like, hey, I just sent this to you through the mail. And then he would have it instead. Nice. I would sometimes like cheat a draw. So I actually didn't do this with our last game of Forbidden Island. Uh, we lost legitimately with Fool's Landing uh, sinking when we were just about to win, like one turn off. But if I had been playing the game with him a little bit earlier, or if I knew he was in kind of a fragile mood, 
um, I would have, you know, secretly peeked at the cards because, you know, he doesn't know <laughs> and, and just accidentally drawn the second card instead of the first card or put a card on the bottom. He wouldn't know why. So, yeah, I, th- I think bending the rules to fit your kid's mood, because in the end, um, you can't play with your kids like looking to get the full gaming experience for yourself at least not at a young age, you know, like don't play with your five-year-old being like, well, I don't have a gaming group to play with. So my five-year-old is going to be my gaming group <laughs> right, right now. It's all about, it's about their entertainment and you hopefully, I mean, hopefully you enjoy doing things with your kid. You know, it's about you enjoying spending time with them with something you love and also potentially setting them up to be a real game partner when they get older. Like, I, I think for you, Peter, at this point, would you say Nicholas can legitimately play several games with you, your 10-year-old? Oh, yeah. He plays most of the games I want to play. I mean, he's played Nations with me. He's played First Class with me. I mean, these are heavier Euro games. He certainly loves Zombicide. I think that might be his number one game of all time. Yes, my 10-year-old is playing games about zombies. Judge me later. Well, my 5-year-old is playing Eldritch Horror about monstrosities eating the earth. So (laughs) I think we're both a little questionable in our choices. And the thing that gets him in at this age is... Every game I get, does it have miniatures? Does it have miniatures? Literally the first question out of his mouth for literally every game we get is, does it have miniatures? So I think that's why he likes Zombicide. He's getting into Gloomhaven, so we're playing a campaign of that together. Yeah, at this point, now he's reading much better. It makes things a lot better, but you do have to go through those years of, let's just remember what gaming's about. It's about sitting at a table with people and having fun. And sometimes to have that fun happen, you do have to bend the rules a little bit. You do have to fudge a draw at the end of the game to make sure they win. I I remember my grandmother used to throw down winning poker hands all the time. That's what I used to play with my grandmother was poker. And she used to throw down winning hands all the time so I could collect the pennies we had in the middle of the table. As long as your kid's having fun, that should be enough for you. Yeah, and going along with that uh, fun thing, I'm very attentive to when Harrison seems to be getting distracted or seems to be getting bored with the game. And, you know, often, first of all, just be ready to call the game. Yep. You know, like the, if if it seems like it's not going well, you can leave it set up and be like, hey, we'll play later. Or you can just be like, hey, that, that, that's enough for now. That's okay. Um, you don't want to get into the situation where you are getting frustrated and, like, vindictive because uh, you're so dedicated to finishing a game and they don't want to. But also, at the same token, I think being willing to be a little silly and, like, add little, you know, voices and elements to the game that aren't technically part of the game itself, that's been really successful for me. Like, for Forbidden Island, you know, there's these uh, helicopter lift cards that you need to discard to win when you're on Fool's Landing. So what I'll do whenever we win the game is I'll put that actual card on the board and put all of our pawns on it, and then I'll hover them away like that's the helicopter, make like a little helicopter whirring sound. You know, or I'll, uh, I'll when we're playing uh, Terra in Meeple City, I'll have like little meeples he's about to eat, like cry out, oh no, please don't eat me, you know, and kind of talk to him. So I think if you're if you're willing to kind of... Kind of like you would do with, like, reading a children's book to to a kid. If you're willing to throw a little bit of extra life and fun into it, it's going to help them keep their attention more because, you know, kids don't have very long attention spans. you got to deal with that. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about that calling a game thing. That is something I am learning myself more and more. It's funny. You think as my kids would get older, I would not have to do that as much. But there's definitely times where they're just not in the right frame of mind. And I got to realize, again, this isn't about my entertainment. This is about having shared experiences with my children. And I don't want them to remember gaming as somebody yelling at them because they're not able to focus in that moment. Yeah, and every one of these rules we're saying are rules I have broken repeatedly. Absolutely. You know, I, I often play with Harrison. I'm like, come on, man. You know, like, I'm, I'm upset that we're not winning and he made a bad move. I'm upset that he's getting bored. And I'm like, ah, take your turn, take your turn. Like... These are rules we should follow, but, you know, just be forgiving with yourself and forgiving to your child because uh, none of us is perfect and it can be a very tough thing, especially in, in a hobby that you are heavily invested in. It's a, it's a delicate thing to try to get someone that you love deeply into it, and if they seem to not care... You know, it's kind of like showing your kid Star Wars or Lord of the Rings for the first time, and if they just seem totally not into it... And it's some fandom that, like, makes up your entire life and your identity. Uh, it's, it's, it's a delicate place to be. So with games, too, if, if games are super important to you, you really have to try your best to, to separate that. And, you know, don't even think of it as playing games. Think of it as being with your kid and having fun. And a game just happens to be the little activity you're doing right now. 
you know, if your kid wants to stop building a tower of blocks because he gets bored, you're not going to get upset about it. Try to apply the exact same thing to uh, the board games you're playing. That's a really good point. And one more trick I just thought of before I get into a list of games I think are great to play with younger kids. Try to play two-player if you can. I know I have two kids, and sometimes it's really hard, especially if the older one and I want to play something. But sometimes I'll take the younger one off and have the older one do something off on his own or go off with his mom. And I'll play games with her, especially the first time they play a game, to learn the rules. I really like to have that one-on-one experience because I think the most important thing is that downtime element. And as everybody's learning the rules, the downtime is going to be more and more. So certainly if you could play it by yourself solo before introducing it to your kids so you know the rules really well, that way you're not looking up rules while you're in the middle of the game because nothing will kill a kid's enthusiasm for a game more than you looking up rules. Like I said, if you got to fudge it, you got to fudge it. Just do what you can to get through that game and then go look up the rule later. But I do like to play one-on-one with my kids because – Time between turns is much shorter when it's only two people playing. So as much as humanly possible, I try to play one-on-one with both of my kids before I get them all together at the table to play it as a three-player game. Yeah, and piggybacking on that, I've done this several times and I think it's good advice. A lot of games these days do offer sort of tutorial missions that are purposefully shorter and simpler than the real game. But even if the game you're playing doesn't, just make one anyway. You know, it's to make that first experience 100% positive and quick. So Forbidden Island, you could be like, okay, we need to get one treasure and then get back to the helicopter. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to take you 10 minutes. Nothing really bad will have happened. They'll be like, that was fun. That was easy. Oh, we did great. And the next time you can say, hey, let's get two treasures this time. I think a lot of games kind of lend themselves to that. Just take what the actual victory condition is and scale it back quite a bit for that first game and let your kid be 100% successful. And I I can think that some people might disagree with a lot of this advice because, you know, you're teaching your kid not to follow through on things. You're teaching your kid to be a poor loser. You're teaching your kid that they can only win and they can only do good things. And I'm not going to say that any of those points are wrong or not valid, but the psychology of especially like a four, five, six-year-old, they're not going to understand all that stuff. I mean, speaking as an educator, they're just not going to understand a lot of that. And now is not the time to teach them these, like, intense life lessons. Now is just the time to let them be joyful, you know, and have a great time in their lives. And if games can be a part of that and something that gives both of you joy, you know, what a wonderful thing that is. Yeah, I agree with that all. So, Mike, what are a list of games that you like to play with your kids? Yeah, so uh, I can tell you the ones I'm playing recently, and then there are a few that have kind of fallen off. Uh, Gulo Gulo, fantastic one. Unfortunately, uh, the better, in my opinion, version, uh, the Gulo Gulo with the, I think they were Wolverines or something. Yep. Uh, that version has been out of print for a long time. I do have the uh, the Egyptian-themed one. It is inferior in several aspects, but still a great, great game. One of the first ones that Harrison would request to play over and over again. Uh, it, it's It's distinctive in that... Kids are legitimately better at it than adults because their fingers are smaller and more dexterous and can get the little eggs out more easily. Well, yeah, I think any of the Hobbit games will work. Animal Upon Animal is a great example. My kids loved Orchard. If you want to get them into co-op games early on, it is the simplest game in the world. You're literally rolling a dice. Four sides of the dice are colored, matching the four fruits you're trying to collect. One side has a raven, which is the negative thing that happens. And if you get, like, nine raven cards, then you lose the game. One side has a basket where you collect any two fruits you want. So there's a little bit of learning. Okay, you want to grab from the tree that has the most fruit because you don't want to run a color out. Because if you do, when you roll that color on the dice, it doesn't do anything anymore. Bottom line is it's a super simple, straightforward co-op game that you're going to win 90% of the time. So it fills a lot of those things for kids. And that's another Hobbit game. Flashpoint Fire Rescues has worked really well for me as well. Even for my youngest kids, I think I started at three or four years old with that one with Allison. Because all you have to do is move one space and put a fire out or pick up somebody who's next uh, on the same space as you. So really... There isn't many actions that they have to learn. All they have to learn is there's fire, it's bad, you want to avoid it, you want to go save the people. And so that can be played really well on the easy level, the family level. Yeah, you know, it's weird for me that, just thinking of it, a lot of the games I play the most with Harrison and that he requests the most are sort of like random ones that are not necessarily great for kids that he saw the box of and wanted to play and just somehow fell in love with. For example, uh, he requests Space Alert all the time. It barely knows how to play it, 
and we get blown up and stuff, and he still really enjoys it. And Eldritch Horror, he always requests Eldritch Horror. Now, we never get through a whole game, almost ever. He, you know, he'll just play for two or three turns and defeat a few monsters and have a few encounters and then and then uh, be done with it. So, like, setting up the game takes as long as our actual playtime takes. But all the dexterity ones, he loved Flip Ships, uh, Terror in Meeple City. He, he enjoys that a lot. I will say the tough thing for him is that he doesn't handle the competitive games too well. So even though Candyland is one we played a lot, he would get upset pretty easily with it. And that is a frustrating game, to be fair, anyway. We, we would change the rules. I'm sure you do the same, Peter, and have uh, you don't actually go back. If you get like a negative character, you just stay where you are. At least that's how we did it. Yeah, no, I I have my whole set of rules for Candyland. I actually posted them on Board Game Geek, so if anybody wants to go, it's under the variant section. <laughs> there I have you a go. whole set of rules I play with with Candyland. Yeah, and what I've done is sometimes taken kid-friendly competitive games and created sort of just cooperative variants for them on the fly. One example that's more recently, and I wouldn't call this a kid-friendly game necessarily, but uh, Flick 'em Up, the, the cowboy uh, original version... I've done it where, like, we're on the same team. We each have three cowboys fighting the bad cowboys. And I, I control the bad cowboys, too, but have them make dumb moves or miss our people terribly or run right in the middle of us, and we can just uh, attack them all together. Um, so I think, you know, it goes back to the design discussion and the flexibility of changing rules. But some of Harrison's favorite games are not being played at all the way they were intended and are, have become fully cooperative instead of competitive. I've seen you play dexterity games. I don't think you're missing those shots on purpose. Well, okay, okay. You're getting a little personal here. I see how it is. <laughs> Any uh, final thoughts uh, for you, Peter? Any final games that have been successful for your kids? No. I mean, like we've been saying the whole time, any game that they glob onto, if they see a picture of something and that attracts them, just introduce them to it. Introduce them to the pieces. My kids play with the components to my games all the time, and I think that's part of what gets them interested in the game as well. They pull out certain games that they love the components for. So if they like the components to a game and they want to play with it, let them play with it. If it rips, you can buy a new one, right? Oh, real quick, I forgot one of our favorite cooperative games. Codenames Pictures, the one that doesn't have any words to read. Harrison loves that, and he, he's been playing that since he was four with a lot of success. The key thing is I'm always the clue giver and he's always the guesser. And I, of course, tailor my clues so that there are things that he'll be able to find. But, man, that that's a really fun one, too. And, of course, that's a great game for families and gamers as well. So, uh, specifically the pictures version. Uh, and I, I know now they have, like, the Disney and Marvel ones, I think, out. Although I think those are a mix of words and pictures. You might have to take the uh, the word cards out until they can read better. But yeah, I think the Codename series is one to definitely look into as well. All right, so good gaming, everyone. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, gaming world, how are you? <laughs> that was that was a terrible intro. <laughs> we're going to go with it. And then uh, also we're having a, what do we call it, an after dark episode, an after show? An after show. Yeah, we're having an after show on eating your children. <laughs> I can't not, remember what it was. On. We're not going to be eating your children on gaming with. And the after show is going to be focused on gaming with your kids. Talk to you kids later.